This is an ABC podcast. In all the years we've been doing conversations, we've never had a guest that doesn't have a mobile phone. Until now. But Miriam Lancewood seems to be doing just fine. Miriam lives in New Zealand with her husband Peter, where they roam the forests of the South Island. They live in simple shelters. They're often exposed to the weather. Sometimes they're hungry and very cold, and they can go for months without seeing another human being. Miriam is a former vegetarian, but now she's learned to kill and skin possums. She can fell a goat with a bow and arrow, and she's rid herself of dandruff by washing her hair in her own urine. I did not know you could do that. Miriam's also learned to live without boredom and largely without fear, and she's discovered a savage side of herself she never knew existed. I talked to Miriam in 2017 when she published her book, Woman in the Wilderness, and a warning some people might find part of this interview distressing. Hi, Miriam. Hello. You grew up in the Netherlands. Was it a fairly conventional childhood? Suburbs, house, family, kids, all that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah pretty normal, yeah. My family did like nature, and, uh, but also uh, music and theatre. And, but, yeah, pretty normal childhood, yeah. You were trained to be a physical education teacher. What yeah. took you to Africa? Um, as a child, I was in, in school. We saw all those magazines with beautiful pictures of children in Africa that... Um, and I thought, and um, that's where I want to go, and go volunteering there. So that's what I did. All right, was, it was brought out an idealistic side of you. you yeah, to go yeah, very. Yeah. And so whereabouts in Africa did you go? Zimbabwe. And how did you find it there? What was the reality of that? The reality, as often with dreams, it was totally different. <laughs> yeah, so I had this amazing image of going there, and uh, I didn't like it at all. Oh, really? Why? Why, why not? What was different? Uh, I felt very lonely. I didn't like schools. I didn't like teaching. And I didn't make many friends. <laughs> <laughs> so aside from that, everything was great, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't great at all. No, no, not great at all. No, I didn't like it at all. And then I thought, well, maybe I should go to another place. And that's when I went to India after a year. What was your plan in going to India? To India? Mm. Uh, then I thought, oh, I don't need to work or volunteer anymore. I'm just going to enjoy myself a little bit more and travel. How did you meet Peter, the man who became your husband? Um, so I used to go to um, local restaurants to make my money last longer, because local restaurants are much cheaper. So I went in there and I saw one other Westerner, and it was very unusual, because all the Westerners normally go to um, Westerner restaurants. And um, so there was Peter sitting there. And um, I thought, well, mm, how good? And I started talking to him, and um, I asked if he could play a game of chess. Because I was travelling around with my chess set, looking for people to play with, and I hardly found anyone, but he, he could play, yeah. And so you talk over chess, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. Talk over chess, and he was saying, well, I'm actually living here in India. And I thought, well, this is remarkable. And he had given up his job in the university as a lecturer, and because he didn't like the politics anymore, and he moved to uh, India to live. Were you attracted to each other straight away, or did that develop over time? Yeah, yeah, he's very handsome, yeah. So, <laughs> so we're very attracted to each other, and even more so when he was talking about the Himalayas, because that's where I want to go, and I thought I want him to take me to the Himalayas. Where did he take you? Where was he working at the time? He was not working. He was living in a little nature reserve in South India, 
and um, just making sure that um, the goat herders didn't come in and cut all the, the last trees down, that sort of thing. And um, he said, oh, it's a nice place. If you want to come and see it, you should come over. And if you like it, you can check out of your um, hostel and, um, and stay if you like. And, uh, but I didn't, um, I didn't waste any time and I moved in directly. Right. And if, if first, he encouraged you to sleep outside for a while. How did he encourage you to do that? Well, not, not really encouraged, but he said, oh, there's this other woman called Nini, and um, it was just a friend, and she had been just sleeping outside on the rocks. On the rocks? On the rocks outside, under the stars. And he was saying, she can do that. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do that, right, to impress him. <laughs> so my main aim was to impress him. And, um, well, that was very nice. I had a very good night. And uh, looking up at the stars, I felt very peaceful. Then the next day he said, I heard this awful sound from a monkey, a screaming monkey. went on for 15 minutes, and it was obviously a leopard. A leopard had caught that monkey. <laughs> and I thought, oh! <laughs> and he said, but don't worry, the, the leopard is long gone. You know, that was last week. <laughs> it's, it's fine. The it's leopard's fine. clear. Yeah, yeah, You'll yeah. be okay. Yeah, and right. so I thought, last night I slept on, so surely I can do it again, right? So well, I slept again on the rocks. Uh, and this time, actually, I slept right next to the door. Uh, and I thought, if the leopard comes, maybe I can jump inside. But, of course, uh, being out, outside, I thought, you know, I never hear that leopard coming. No. No. <laughs> and if I hear it, it's too late. And um, So you're terrified. Oh, you? absolutely terrified. Oh. So the next night you spent the night in the hut. Yeah, and, and, I, and the next night he said, oh, you can come inside if you like. <laughs> <laughs> you see the cunning plan there, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so you became a couple after that, and, and the, there's a 30-year difference in age. Yeah. That's quite an age gap. Did people make a lot of fuss over that, Miriam? I'm sure they did. I mean, say something to you. Yeah, once uh, one woman, another traveller, she asked, is that your father? And I was like, mm. oh, I don't want to hear that too often. But I didn't, actually. That was the, the only time. Uh, how did he entice you then to come to live in New Zealand with him? Well, we were walking the Himalayas. That was a fantastic journey, 500 kilometres, took us two months. And um, after that, he was always talking about New Zealand and saying, look, in New Zealand, we can drink the water from the rivers. You don't get sick, unlike the, the Himalayas. So we made a plan to go together to New Zealand, and it took us some time to get there. What kind of financial plan did you have to make in order to make that work? Our financial plan was to yeah. travel as cheap as possible. And uh, with that method, we travelled a long time, and actually, we still do do it that way. And um, yeah, and that way, we never sort of get broke. So you moved to New Zealand and got work as a teacher. Did you find, like it any better than in Zimbabwe? Uh, yeah, slightly better, slightly better. Yeah, it was all right. Um, but also because during that year, we were starting to think to go back into the mountains, because in the Himalayas, Peter and I had encountered these nomads. Um, yak nomads, so these these women um, travelling around with their their cows, and we thought that's a fantastic way of living to be nomadic in the mountains. And we thought maybe we can do the same in New Zealand. In New Zealand, yeah, we have to of of course organise it totally differently because there are no villages there. Did Peter have those kind of skills for living in the bush already? Yeah, he's, he's never been living like this before, but he has um, a lot of knowledge about, say, the weather, and, yeah, he's physically up to it. And that idea of living like that in the, in the mountains, in that kind of nomadic life, why did that appeal to you? 
Well, it's actually an, another deeper question behind. We were actually wondering what effect does the wilderness have on the mind and on the physical body? And um, would it transform the mind by living for a long time away from human society? So you were doing a kind of an experiment exactly, in a way, yeah. Yeah, on, on yourselves in that yeah. sense. Tell me about the conversation that you had with Peter's brother that sort of you know, crystallized your thinking about that. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. That was, he was, he's got a very big farm on the West Coast in North Island, New Zealand. And he said when the apocalypse comes, like that could be anything, right? Um, the fall down of the monetary system or a disease or whatever it is. He says, then I'm going to blow up the bridges and uh, I can be totally self-sufficient on my land and only the people with skills can come across on my land and we can work together as a sort of a commune. And what did you think when you heard that? And I thought, skills? I thought, what is my skill? Um, physical education teacher? And uh, I thought, that's not very good. It's not going to be very useful. <laughs> For the apocalypse, no. Yeah. And I thought, I have to at least learn how to grow vegetables, how to build huts, and how to hunt. And that's where the idea came, like, maybe I should, you know, just in case. It wouldn't hurt me. I would definitely enjoy learning such a thing. So then the project becomes twofold in a way. It's one is to see what happens to the yeah. mind, and, but also to train yourself to see if you can actually live yeah. like that, live in the wild, yeah. hunt and kill your own food and grow your own food. Yeah, I wanted to be more independent of the, you know, of the big global system and uh, because that also gives confidence, I think. Yeah, confidence must have been a large part of it. It must have been a way of, I don't know, freeing yourself of all of those kind of neuroses or nameless fears most people have living in the modern world. Yeah. Yeah, I think all of us have this 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 thought that you had too. I think all of us have that thought. You know, in that situation, what skills would I have to offer standing on the other side of the yeah. of the bridge? What would I? Yeah, be that able little to scenario out? makes you think. Doesn't it does, it? doesn't yeah. it? I haven't got tons, Miriam. I don't have a lot. <laughs> so it's made me think a lot long, long and hard about all that. So, having done that, how carefully did you plan for what you'd need in order to actually go and live in the mountains of New Zealand like that? Well, we made sure we had enough supplies with us. Because first of all, we thought, okay, we're going into the wild, just like going into the wild, and just with a bow and arrow and see how long we can survive. And uh, quite quickly, we understood that we need, there is actually nothing to eat out there apart from meat. There are no vegetables, no berries, none of that. So we had to bring supplies. So we thought, okay, what are we going to bring? Something that will last a long time, right? Like dry beans and that lentils, rice, flour. So that's what we took with us, and we took that with us in buckets. So um, our first um, little expedition was four months in the winter. Right, just to see how it would go. Yeah. I'm with Miriam Lancewood. Miriam and her husband Peter went on a voyage of discovery for six years living in the wilderness of New Zealand on the South Island there. And she's the author of a book called Woman in the Wilderness, a story of survival, love and self-discovery in New Zealand. In preparing to go, was it hard to get rid of your possessions? Peter must have had a lot of stuff in New Zealand to get rid of. Um, well, actually, when he left New Zealand first time around to live in India, he had um, thrown away everything. So that was the, the, his big change. And actually, it was f quite exhilarating to get rid of all those possessions. And I felt like all those possessions take up a part in your head and you actually get burdened down by them. Not only you have to buy all those things, you also have to look after them, pay for them. You know, if you have a telephone, you have to pay bills. And so I was quite glad to get rid of all that stuff. I must say we, we did keep quite a few books in, in a little box. How confident were you that it would work? 
Well, I thought uh, we've just climbed the Himalayas. Um, we've been travelling for quite a few years. I had been teaching physical education. I felt quite strong and I was very confident. <laughs> Fair enough, too. Yeah, if you've been liking the Himalayas, that's pretty good prep, isn't it? Yeah. What did you tell your mother in the Netherlands you were going to do? Um, I said we would go into the wild and um, that she would hear from me via letters. I said I will start writing just with pen and paper. And if we meet a hunter, then that hunter will post a letter because the stamp is already on it. <laughs> yeah. And did that system work? Yeah, it did. Yeah. What was it like to for your mum to get messages like that? I wonder just oh, in, see, in the wilderness. It's fantastic for them, uh, especially because it uh, smelled completely of smoke. <sighs> so the whole, all the paper, so everything of us smells of smoke. All our clothing, books, everything. So where did you start? Where in the South Island did you start? Uh, we started in South Marlborough. We found one valley where um, there was one big river going up there and there were a couple of huts, uh, very old huts, and we based ourselves near those huts because, we, of course, we didn't know if we could survive without the huts or where we would sleep. Or yeah, And um, in the beginning we went there, but those huts, they um, were sort of invaded by mice and rats and were very, very dirty, so I felt much more comfortable in the tent. At least no little critters would come in. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Did you clear out those uh, huts? Uh, yeah, yeah. I started cleaning all that and making myself feel a bit more comfortable. How beautiful was this valley you were in? It was absolutely fantastic. And especially in the serenity of winter, everything is so much more quiet. So we were situated near a big river. And in New Zealand, the, the water is so clear and it flushes often. So there is hardly any sand. It's all stones and boulders. And the river runs through that. It's quite loud also, and uh, sort of a rushing sound. On one side was this cliff, and all the little ferns are growing on that cliff, right? And sometimes a little tree grows in there. Rem remarkable that a tree can grow there, right, just in a rock. And on the tops will be more forest. And then through the valley we can look up to the mountains with snow on it. You know, it's absolutely incredible. How does it smell? Um... The smell completely depends on the weather. So if the wind comes from the south, it is a very crisp smell. You know, if it comes from the north, it's more humid. And it brings... Um, so my um, sense of smell has increased a lot over the years, right? So now I do notice the differences in smell. In the evening, when it's a little bit moist, when I go hunting, then I smell the beautiful perfumes of all the flowers or the grass or the moist leaves of the forest. Um, so it's very intense then. Uh, in the middle of the day, it's, it's, it's windy and that. It's so windy in New Zealand. So the wind brings all the different smells. So that's, it's also incredible. What kind of animal and bird life are you living with there? That first winter, uh, we didn't see too many animals. We saw one go to start with and never again. Uh, but there must have been deer there. But in that first winter, I didn't know where to find the animals. So you get set up and you cleaned out the hut, and you made a home for yourself. Then you say, you and Peter went into this period of intense boredom for a while. Yeah, yeah. So See, we... that surprised me, Miriam. <laughs> like, I really thought you'd be working day and night, you know, getting, working, looking for to food. Survive. Yeah, yeah, getting wood and, yeah. and, and keeping things going. I thought uh, boredom is uh, like having nothing to do. Yeah, I, exactly. I thought exactly the same. So if we, um, I thought surviving probably takes all day, right? But um, I found out, so I have been quite busy with all the preparation. We've been reading lots of books. I've been busy with sewing clothing and all 
all that. Then we arrived. Uh, I cleaned out that whole hut. I did all the little chores. And then the next day, there was absolutely nothing more to do. So what did you do? Oh. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was nothing to do. So Peter said, well, just calm down and sit down and enjoy where you are. And I thought, well, you know, that's all right for five minutes. <laughs> and then I thought, well, what am I going to do for the next three, four months? And uh, so that it takes some time for the mind to calm down and come in sync with the rhythm of nature. Because nature is much slower paced than our mind. So the, the city is, is totally different rhythm, different energy than, um, than the forest. So what do you do then? Do you learn to do things much slower? Yeah, so it just takes time to, um, to slow down. It, about, it takes about two weeks. Two weeks to yeah. adjust. And it, when you're in, a, in that adjustment period, do you get anxious? Because you're, oh my God, what am I going to do? What do I, what do I yeah, do? Yeah, there's almost like a feeling of panic. Like, mm. oh, what am I going to do for the next four months? Um, but after that, uh, you just have to sit through it. It's almost like an, getting through an addiction, you know? Yeah. yeah. You went cold turkey on the modern yeah. world in, in a way. Was Peter better at making that adjustment? Had he already made that adjustment? Yeah, he, I must say he was much better at it. And uh, so he could give me some advice on how to go through it, which was very helpful. Had he been as restless as I, we might have just, um, I don't know. Freaked out and gone to McDonald's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> instead. So, so with, with all that going, you said that it was kind of like to be an experiment, if you like, on what would happen to the human mind, and here yeah. it was. Was there part of you that was observing yourself, going, hmm, this is interesting, I'm responding in this way? Yeah, so I thought, well, that's interesting that I am now so restless and that I am bored. And I thought, am I bored or am I afraid to get bored? Two different things, right? They are. Yeah, and then I thought maybe I, it's the fear is worse than boredom itself. So there's a process of learning to do nothing then? Yes, exactly. It's a real art to it. Yeah. And what does that mean? Sitting still? Or, or what, Miriam? What is that? Doing nothing is actually just doing nothing. <laughs> and, but also not occupying yourself for the sake of occupying. Yeah, so just sit down and then you start to see uh, all the things around you. Then you become aware of things. You know, and then you see all the beauty, really. Well, so nature becomes like a theatre that can entertain you, in other words. Yeah, indeed. So in the beginning, we were walking in nature and we felt an observer, like an audience, right? We're looking at a theatre. But after some times, we feel part of it. So we become part of nature. We become part of that beauty and that purity. So hunting with a bow and arrow, Miriam. There's a picture of you with a bow and arrow in your book and you look completely yeah. amazing in it. You look like Diana, the goddess of the hunt. <laughs> You know, that's, that looks amazing. But what's the reality of it starting out anyway with hunting? The reality is quite different. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> but I started off, yeah, because of Robin Hood was my hero. Also because of what Peter's brother Mark had said, what are you going to do in case of when the world comes to its end? And then I thought, if I go hunting with a gun, what's the point if you run out of bullets? Mm -hmm. So then I thought I have to get a bow and arrow so I can make my own arrows. You see my way of thinking? Yeah. That's why I started off with bow and arrow. And uh, I had practiced on target for a year when we were still in our house. And I thought I'm going to be ready for hunting. But of course, it was much di more difficult than expected. Tell me about how you went about that first day, that first time you went hunting. What happened? Yeah, so I went off. And for a start, I was very afraid to get lost. So I just stick to the, um, the riverbed. And I thought maybe there's animals in a the forest. I don't know where the animals are, really. 
<laughs> well, they've got to come down for a drink at some point, don't they? Yeah, yes, that's what's my thinking too. So just walking around and uh, my friend had said, well, you can sort of call goats like... <laughs> and then they call back. Really? And, and yeah, Wow. And then you sort of know where they are, right? So I kept bleating and bleating. <laughs> but it was absolutely nothing. Nothing happened. Yeah, and I was very disappointed. And I thought, well, this is so difficult. I've been in the forest with a bow and arrow, bleating for several hours and no yeah. response. Yeah, and uh, I just sort of hurried back. And uh, in the beginning, I was quite disappointed with myself that I didn't um, uh, show much endurance with the hunting. Uh, after half an hour, I thought, okay, mm, there's probably nothing around. There's no animals. I'll go back to camp. I had pictured myself being very enthusiastic about hunting. And when it came down to it, that first winter, I wasn't enthusiastic at all. So tell me about shooting your first goat when you actually did get to shoot a goat with yeah. an arrow. So it was quite a process to get to that first goat. So first I lost my enthusiasm. Later I've, I saw more sign. And then uh, I got more keen again. And uh, finally, 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 after six months, I found my first goat. And uh, I was very, you know, my heart was in my throat. And because I didn't want to miss or wound it, right? That was my main fear that I wounded it. And um, so I shot a little goat, a kid, and um, the, the Billy and the nanny were behind it. And uh, it was all so tragic. So I finally shot one, but I sort of sat down and cried myself. So when you fired the arrow, where did you hit the kid? Yeah, straight into the heart. Luckily, that was a good shot. And it then fell down. And then the Billy and Nanny stood around and they didn't want to leave the, the kid. And so that makes it even more tragic. And, um, yes, yeah, so I felt terrible. You've been a vegetarian up until this point, haven't you? Yes, exactly. So what did you? Did you burst into tears? Or? Yeah, almost. Yeah, I was sort of, not sort of bursting, but definitely a little bit crying. <laughs> the, the thing I know about people who, who hunt for food is that they feel this incredible gratitude. Yeah, exactly. To the animal yeah. that's killed, and almost yeah. a sense of they want to honour it, yeah. the dead animal. That's, did you feel that? Yeah, definitely. And I feel definitely in connection with the animal. But also because my total aim is to, to eat it, right? So the animal becomes part of me. I'm eating all the... We're using everything of the animal and using also the, the skin to make clothing and that. So, um, yeah, there is an amazing connection. You wouldn't think so, of course when you hear about hunting but uh it is true that um I l i've never loved a goat more than hunting it and it sounds such a contradiction doesn't it and once you brought that kid home could you eat the meat yeah yeah that's why i got yeah. it yeah of course <laughs> and, uh, well i mean I, I just want to know sometimes you know you might be really so overcome you might not feel oh i can't do this and just leave it there and feel overwhelmed oh no, that by... would be terrible no yeah. no i got it when i got back to camp i felt absolutely um so happy because after six months practicing and f so much failure i finally got the, um, my first kill and um, then i uh, sawn off the little horn of that goat and that's what i'm carrying now around my neck that's it there. Yeah. Of course, once you've killed it and brought it back, you have to then you know, skin it and get the meat from it and all that. Did you know yeah. how to do that beforehand? Um, yeah, somebody had showed me, a friend, and um, my very first time that I tried to skin, but I was actually a possum, um, I had a total blackout and I didn't know how to do it. It is not difficult, but, uh, you know, when you're faced with an animal like that. It's yes, <laughs> the reality of blood and yeah. everything else that goes and with the smell, that. Yeah. And the smell of it, yeah. Opening up an animal like that and seeing its insides the thing that was moving around a short while ago indeed it must it's be a, it must amazing. be quite amazing and strange to do that
Yes. Uh, and I think that everyone who is eating meat should at least experience this once. That every piece of meat that you're eating was once alive, right? And so if I see any wasters of meat here in the city, that really, I find that so sad. But anyway, um, yeah, so when I open the uh, goat, for instance, I also realize that I'm look also looking at myself because our intestines are so similar. Yeah, they're mammals like us. Yeah, uh, we are actually an animal. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so that act of hunting and killing sort of yeah. reconnects you with your animal self. Yes, way. and I'm amazed how, because growing up as a vegetarian, I didn't learn hunting from my parents, you know, but all those instincts are still in me, and therefore they must be in every one of us, right? And all those instincts and senses that you need for hunting, like uh, you have to hear everything, so you have to walk very, very quiet to start with, right? If you make any noise, the animals are long gone. But even if you think, it's already too much noise, so it sort of forces you or encourages you to um, sort of walk in meditation. What do you mean if you think it's too much noise? I don't understand. Your own thought. So if you're in a very, very quiet place, not in the city but out in the wilderness, then you will notice that your own thought is a noise in your head. So if you stop thinking, it is quiet, and then you can hear properly. So the conscious mind goes to sleep or just takes a back seat or something. Yeah, take a back else. seat and then you become alert. So actually you become alive if the conscious mind goes to sleep. <laughs> and in that moment, are you really connected through the senses to the forest yeah, very powerfully? So, yeah, and I feel completely open then. And not only hunting, but after years living in the wilderness, I feel completely open to the plants, to the trees, to the world and also to other people. listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Speaking there before about hunting, did you have the moment where you actually came right up close to your prey while it was still living? Uh, yes, for bow hunting you have to come quite close. So you come to, to 20 metres or so. So when you, if you, for instance, like, I don't know, shot a goat and in the leg or something and it took off, would you then have to chase it? Once I had to do this, yeah, yeah, yeah. What I happened? had to um, chase it and it took more than an hour probably. I had shot all my arrows and it was still running. And I thought, well, this animal is suffering. I should, I should get after it. Plus, um, I want to come back with some meat, right? I want to eat, eat something. And get your arrows back too, presumably, as well. Yeah, well, they were somewhere in the grass and I couldn't find them no. anymore. <laughs> so the only thing I had was a knife and I had to chase it uh, in the riverbed. And I started running and then um, over the boldness, right? So it's quite difficult to run. And uh, when I was tired, I stopped running. And then the goat also stopped running. And then we both walked, right? Then I started running again and goat started running again. And this went on and on and on. So uh, we were really some, some kind of connection. We were both the most important thing in the world for each other. And uh, after some time, it was really getting very weak. And I went into a little cave. And then I thought, this is my only chance. And with my knife, I could then um, take its life. And then what happened? You went into the cave and what, and just cut its throat, or, or what? Or oh, did it so I tried to escape. Or? Yeah, right, yeah. It tried to, trying to escape, and where, while it was running past me, I, um, uh, with my knife, I s stabbed it in between the ribs. 
in his heart. Yeah. And then it dropped dead. Yeah, right, then it right dropped there dead. There. Yeah. Well, oh, my God. Once that had happened, I wonder what you felt like after that. Yeah, I thought, wow, this is really quite an heroic thing. This is a real adventure. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, I thought this would be exactly the thing that I would have really uh, despised uh, had I been still living in Holland. You know, I found it really very savage and uh, inflicting suffering on animals. And then I thought, but if I, this is real. This is how all our ancestors have lived and survived, right? So this is um, completely part of life. And we've eaten that, um, that goat gave us one week of food. And, um, yeah, and I feel that. So, you know, we're all part of the big cycle. How pleased was Peter when you were able to bring home a goat? Oh, he was always so happy, yeah. So part of the total uh, satisfaction is seeing his face when I come back with a goat on my back. (laughs) He's so happy because he's the cook, so I'm the hunter, and he cooks the food, and he always makes delicious curries. Really? So he turned that into a goat curry, would he? Yeah, goat curry. So he's got all those spices with him. He takes it everywhere with him, and um, that's why, how we eat very, very well every night. Right. And once you've eaten that goat curry, that, that, must, that must be amazing to have eaten a goat curry that you've hunted and killed and cooked yourselves. Yeah, indeed. And that wild meat gives so much energy. It's quite incredible. Really? How different that is from, saying buying something in a shop. But it won't be any different. You know, its makeup won't be any different, will it? I mean, is it just in your own mind that it... You get that energy, or is that is that? Well, perhaps, but it's definitely, <laughs> <laughs> I can feel the difference. Yeah, and um, I don't know. There must be very healthy meat, and it's very lean, and um, yeah, you're eating really the place. So there are no vegetables, but those hares and rabbits and goats—they're eating the the herbs of the um, the the wilderness, right? Washing while you're in the wilderness, how would you do it? Well, we wash in the river. And we, I have one bar of soap that is uh, good for shampoo and washing and washing the clothes. And you had complete privacy in order to do that, or that didn't bother you? <laughs> privacy? Yeah. There is nobody. There is nobody at all around? No, no. So I can walk around all, all day naked if I want to. It's a bit cold. The sand flies will get us. What about uh, how often would you wash? I only wash when uh, the weather is good, uh, if we have a little bit of sun. Because I want it's too cold. So we're always, we're often at 1,000 meter height, altitude. So that's always quite cold. So if it's a nice sunny day, then I go out and uh, have a quick wash. And how good does that feel if you haven't washed for a few days? I know how it feels. Good it feels if you haven't had a shower for two days. That shower you get is yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah, I feel amazing. incredibly clean washing with that uh, cold water. Yeah, much cleaner than taking a shower here in town. You noticed with your hair you were getting dandruff, and Peter advised you to use urine to, to Yeah, he had that read that somewhere. <laughs> yeah, he read that somewhere? Does it have to be female urine? He said so, yeah. He said so. <laughs> I don't know. I believed him. The reason why I said I was talking once with an art restorer, she was saying you can actually clean an oil painting with a mixture of women's urine and uh, potato s- scrapings. And uh, a oh, caller yeah. rang in and said, oh, where am I going to get that from? And she said, well, where do you think? <laughs> So, I mean, did it work? It worked, yeah, amazing. Amazingly so. Uh, and it never came back to dandruff. How cold did it get when you were in the South Island? Well, of course, we have nothing to measure, so we don't have a uh, thermometer. By, by your own sense of it. Um, it? It got very cold, and we found especially that sort of watery cold terrible. So when it's really freezing in the clear sky that's quite um, pleasant but when it's just raining and sort of one degree 
that's uh, really oh, beautiful. that's bitterly cold. And that's dried. like a wet blanket sitting on your shoulders. Yeah, were you ever able to get warm enough in those conditions? Yeah, so the best thing to do is um, be active, like get firewood, and uh, so that's what I did a lot. Or eat more, and especially the meat made a huge difference. So in the beginning, we didn't eat meat because I couldn't, I didn't shoot anything, and we didn't trap anything, and uh, we were just eating beans and lentils, and we wake up with hunger pains in the morning because um, keeping warm at night took up so much energy. How was Peter being a bit older than you? Was, did, was he coping less he, well with yeah, the cold? he found that very difficult. He was way more cold than I am, I believe. And he said at some point, you know, we're not really equipped for this and uh, we should think of what else we can do. Or give up and leave. Give up. And I thought, give up? We've only been here one month. You know, our only expedition only had just started. And uh, But I tried to be supportive and I say, well, you know, what sort of solutions can we think of? And then, then we said, okay, we must uh, put in more effort for hunting. And that's when I started trapping a possum. And once you killed a possum, did that lift his spirits? Yeah, that made a major difference. And that's when we discovered that meat keep, keeps you warm in the mountains high up. Was possum meat delicious? Is it good? good yeah, eating? very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Better than goat? What, what's, the, what's the preference um, there? I think I like goat better. Um, a female goat is better, yeah. Of course, possums keep you warm on the outside too, don't they? Were you able to skin and use the pelt of the possum? Yeah, so I learned how to make garments with the um, very, very warm possum skin. I made a blanket and I made um, a mat to sleep on and a jacket. And that is really very, very warm. You were trapped at one period in a hut for days and days and days while weeks. it rained. Weeks. Yeah. While it rained and rained every single yeah. day. We came to yeah, we came to a small old hut, 100-year-old hut, with only one window and it was very dark. And we planned to stay there one night before going up into the higher mountains. That night it started to rain and it never stopped raining for three weeks. Three weeks. Yeah. How come you didn't kill each other? I mean, most people would have <laughs> under the circumstances, Miriam. That must have been extraordinary being stuck in a hut for three weeks with each other like that in the rain. Yeah. So this is also a little bit like I like to experiment on myself. And I like to discover myself and, um, and see how human relationships are in general, you know. So I see everything as um, a point of learning. So, um, but that, yeah, it's very uh, confronting, you know. It's like a mirror, right? And you see yourself a lot better in each other. For instance, uh, one of the questions I ask myself is, uh, do I love Peter or do I love his image that I have of him? You know, so everyone makes an image of each other, right? I like him to be A, B and C. And, uh, of course, the reality is not like it. And that's where the conflict begins, right? Wow, that's a pretty dangerous thought to pull apart, isn't it, Miriam, <laughs> while you're yeah. in a rainy cabin for three weeks. Yeah. So, yeah, it forces you to be very, very honest with each other and yourself. What could you do to pass the time, other than <laughs> ask yourself those kind of questions, <laughs> yeah. Miriam? So we talk a lot about those sort of things, which we found interesting, but we also play a lot of chess still. We have endless chess competitions, and we are reading one book between us, and every time we take a different book. But uh, we had, for instance, uh, Lao Tzu, uh, Dao De Ching, or we read a lot of Krishnamurti. Oh, yeah. right. So, so you're just passing a book between one another and talking about that. Yeah, he, Peter might be reading and they said, oh, listen to this. And he reads out something of interest. While you were out there, how would other people come to your aid? Did you help like by a helicopter pilot at one point, weren't you? Yeah, so uh, by chance. 
So we were in the mountains. We hadn't seen anyone for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then we saw a helicopter. And that was remarkable. It was like someone coming from another planet, you know. We hadn't heard a, an engine for ages. So uh, I started to wave wildly. Like, oh, I was so much hoping he was going to be coming down. But just for the conversation, I yeah, suppose. Just yeah, just to see one, somebody. So to see somebody after weeks not seeing anyone is such a fantastic experience. And then we discovered that um, we had become very open in that um, we almost become the other person if we meet somebody else. And we almost look through the other person's eyes. And those sort of experiences are very remarkable. Was he able to help you? Yeah, so this helicopter pilot, we, we started talking around the fire, and um, he said, well, I can fly in your supplies, if you like, to another hut, uh, to another valley. And, um, and that was, of course, fantastic for us. Couldn't be better. So we helped us a lot, yeah. And how were you able to help him in, in return? So in return, we got, um, we picked for him Spagnum moss that um, uh, grows in New Zealand naturally, and they need that for pot plants and that. And so uh, we had to pick 100 wall bills full of moss in return for all the helicopter costs. So that was a fantastic exchange. At one point, Miriam, you went on a solo week-long deer hunting trip <laughs> on the west coast yeah. yeah this was with a gun wasn't it <laughs> yeah so that, in that time i had changed to a gun because i saw that um it is much more humane to um shoot an animal with a bullet because it's so much quicker and so much easier too anyway i thought by myself i'll go hunt just like those old um deer hunters in the old days i go by myself and, and just and shoot a deer and eat it and um survive when I, I tend to find, you know, if I've had periods of really long solitude, it makes me really emotional, actually. I tend to burst into tears or something and, and feel yeah. really joyous and really you know, really up and down emotionally if you have a long time. Like when I've travelled in foreign countries, you know, for example, on my own, I find, oh, yeah. you know, we're not talking to someone or having yeah. a proper conversation with someone for a week, you sort of go really up and down the emotional scale. Do you find that? Oh, really? That's very interesting to hear. So I find that uh, in I am much more emotional when I come to um, the human world the cities and I am yeah as you say more happy more I cry more and but when I'm in the wilderness that sort of evens out and uh, I have no uh, not so strong emotions but when I was by myself yeah that's very different from being with Peter yeah but also um, interesting to overcome that the loneliness or rather the fear of loneliness what did you take with you when you went out on that deer hunting trip on your own just that it was midwinter so i took with me all my possum garments my mat my blanket and my jacket to keep warm and i just took um some salt and a little bit of bread for the first day because i thought i'm going to shoot a deer and um eat, eat that for the rest of the week a, a tent as well something to sleep in yeah, yeah a tent yeah sorry i think open there in the, in the, yeah. in the cold what happened what happened when you found a deer did you find any deer? <laughs> yeah, so I thought I'm going to um, find where the deer are and camp nearby. But I just happened to camp exactly in the spot where the deer are meeting. So I didn't see any deer, but in the middle of the night, the deer sort of ran over my tent. And I got <laughs> such a shock. And I was absolutely frightened. And then I thought, oh, I shouldn't be frightened because I'm supposed to shoot this deer, right? That's what I'm doing here. And um, <laughs> so I never, I never shot any deer, but I was quite happy with that because deer are such amazing animals and quite big. 
actually I've never shot a deer in my life because um, I find them amazing and I'm always hesitant to shoot one. You shot a goat instead while yeah. you were on, on that trip. Yeah, and got a very old one. <laughs> and, and a very old one. What was the meat like? It was terrible. So, um, so that was my very first time that I cooked for myself because normally Peter always cooks. So I shot this goat and uh, I could see that it was an old goat because it had very long horns. It was a male goat. And I thought, okay, what am I doing now? I had no idea. I didn't know where to find them, how to get the right cuts and all that. But I just tried. Then I cooked it and when I started eating, it was so tough, like leather. Then I thought I must have done something wrong because what have I done wrong? Normally Peter does all this, right? Then um, I took it home. After five days I went home and Peter says, oh, it's obviously way too, it's very, very old goat. You have to cook it for a week. (laughs) (laughs) Your most recent walk took you on a 3,000 kilometre trail through the north and south islands of New Zealand. (laughs) How long did it take you and Peter to complete that walk? Uh, It took us 10 months. Other people, they do it in four months, but we have the luxury of no time. So we can take as long as we want. Even if it takes three years, it didn't matter. Also, we took our time because I was hunting on the way and we didn't want to rush. So so you took your time. Was walking the hardest part of that? What was the hardest part of that big, long journey? Yeah, walking in the mountains with a very heavy pack was incredibly tough. I always say that was much more tough than writing a book. (laughs) (laughs) Writing a book's easy compared to hiking through the mountains. Absolutely. But also getting dirty, my clothing getting sweaty, right? And I don't know when I can wash it because tomorrow we might have to keep walking. And then I, and the sweat goes in my pack, right? You've got that padding. Mm-hmm. And how can I wash my pack? So Peter was not so much concerned about all this uh, as I was, I must say. But um, that I found difficult. So you were turning into a, one great big mucky, grubby hiker. Yeah, yeah. This, this, I didn't this, want this, to. And I tried to wash a lot, but it was very, very difficult. How about uh, thirst, dealing with extreme thirst on this hike? Yeah, once we crossed a mountain in the North Island and we couldn't find any water and we thought surely we come across something because in the South Island there's water everywhere and in the end we found a little sort of pig hollow you know mud and all that and Peter scooped up a little uh, cup of water and we boiled that and muddy then, water was it yeah Oh, man. So you would have had to boil that for quite a while just to be on the safe side, wouldn't you? Yeah, we should have just boiled it. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite a while, but um, we didn't get sick, actually. Yeah, and so we went without water for um, one and a half day or so. We were very thirsty after that. It was very hot as well. Right. And, and, And once you'd had the water, did you feel much better? Yeah. Oh, yeah, and then the next morning... I felt so incredibly tired because my body had not um, recovered overnight. And that's when Peter said, now you know how I feel every morning. <laughs> because for him, the, the journey was, of course, much more difficult in being um, 61 at the time. His recovery is much slower and um, he had a lot of pain. So you must have to help each other out all the time then. You, does that work out well, you two standing by one another, walking alongside one another, helping each other out? Yeah, and I think that's um, the key for our relationship, that we are not competing. He obviously has so much more experience in his life. He has a lot of wisdom. He's read a million books. I'm not going to compete with him uh, intellectually. But you're strong. 
and I'm much stronger, yeah, and, uh, you know, my background is physical education. So together, we are quite good. <laughs> do you get a fear of the wild? And is it easy to defeat? Do you, being out in the, in the wilderness, do you sort of lose that fear of, of the wild? Fear? Um, hmm. Maybe the very, very first time I walked into the forest, this is 10 years ago, I thought, well, this is so wild and so very, very different. And so for us, we can say there is a human world in the wilderness, and that is such a difference that we observe. We didn't make that division ourselves, even though it sounds like it, but um, the influence of humans is so strong after a while. Yeah, it's really very noticeable. And that created fear to start with. But now I don't have any fear for that at all. I feel quite at home. So I always say, I don't have a home, I don't have a house. But for me, the nature, the wilderness, that is my home. How about coming into the wider world, in, into the cities again? Is that, does that frighten you now, being in the world of noisy cars and traffic and all of the, the kind of speed and noise of everyday city life? Yeah, so I used to have psychological fear, of the fear of failure, like all other people, right? Uh, I, I feel that that has gone, uh, mostly, and now I'm left with the real fear for real things, for physical things. So for me, it's frightening to be in the traffic because I realise if someone falls asleep because everyone is so tired, because they don't sleep enough, um, then they create an accident and then I'm, I'm dead. I could be dead any time in the traffic. So those are the real things. But I don't have any fear for, say, um, uh, going on television or radio or all those things because that's not real to me. There's no physical threat there. No. Yeah, exactly. So long as we behave ourselves yeah, as, exactly. <laughs> as, as radio yeah. presenters. I've got to say, you don't look at all like I thought you'd look, Miriam. You, you look really well and, and, and oh, healthy. Yeah? I, I thought what I'd, did you imagine? I, well, someone a bit weather-beaten. You know, oh, I yeah? someone, someone, you know, a bit wrinkly from the sun and, the, yeah. and living out in the elements and someone who looked like perhaps they'd been in prison for a couple of years as well. <laughs> I don't know. You look very, very healthy indeed. Yeah, uh, that is majorly because we're sleeping so much. So we're going to bed when it's dark and get up when it's light. And in the winter, this is 14 hours probably. We don't know. We don't have a clock. We don't have a time at all. The sort of body recovers and the mind recovers. And so that gives me enormous energy. And, of course, the meat that we're eating, the water is so pure and um, that sort of rejuvenates the body. What's cha Apart from this new perspective on fear, what, what else is, what's changed in you in this time? I think the um, the realization that us humans are so insignificant out in the real world, in nature, right? The world we're born all born into, and uh, my psychological, all my psychological things even become more insignificant, and so they've slowly dissolved. And with that, my mind has become more empty, and I can feel more, and I'm much more aware of things. And so there's an inner peace because of it, and clarity comes out of it. And also, and that's the main thing for me, the, um, the confidence. So I feel now an inner strength that is not dependent on uh, insults or compliments or all those outer things. A lot of people listening to this in country Australia will really get what you're saying, I think, and really understand what you're saying, people who live in you know, more remote parts of Australia in any case. Yeah. What, do you, what do you observe now about people like, like me who live in in the big city yeah what i mentioned before mm. a lot of people are so tired because they um they, they sleep too little electricity is so bad for your health 
you know, I think the best thing we could do is live without electricity so we can go to bed in, in the right time and uh, the mind is quiet and can rejuvenate at night. But also, um, to do, I don't know how people can stand doing every day the same thing and not become feel like a robot, you know. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I like to live out in the wilderness. <laughs> See, I don't think I, I don't think you know since the introduction of smartphones has annihilated boredom. Instead, there's constant distraction. You know, you, there's the stuff you get on with and the stuff you want to do and stuff you need to do. But yeah. in those moments that fall in between, because people can always just look at what's happening in the world on their smartphone. Yeah, it, you don't it, you don't have to be bored waiting in a queue or bored doing this those little no, moments you're constantly of occupied yeah constantly yeah. occupied constantly distracted is that something you you see as well something that that kind of constant distraction that yeah so the mind with? is always occupied so it never has a chance to recharge it's like a battery that's always going flat yeah if only we would not distract ourselves all the time with smartphones you might get right might recharge your battery a little bit thank you so much miriam <laughs> thank you for having me I spoke to Miriam Lancewood in 2017 when she published her book, Woman in the Wilderness. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. I'm Benjamin Law. And I'm Beverly Wang. And we're the co-hosts of the ABC podcast, Stop Everything. Now, if you love a good chat, which is a very strong possibility since you've just finished conversations, come and join us over on Stop Everything, because every week, Ben and I talk through what's making news in the world of pop culture. So if you've ever wanted to know the backstory of why a celebrity is apologising, what they're apologising for, and why it might not be quite landing, or the reason why a particular meme is cropping up all over your social feed and how it's a sign of the times, then Stop Everything is for you. Ben and I talk to each other, but we also talk to some of the most exciting creators, thinkers, and observers of screen, audio, and online culture. We get deep into how and why pop culture reflects and affects the world. That's Stop Everything with me, Benjamin Law. And me, Beverly Wang. Follow Stop Everything now on the ABC Listen app. Or wherever you get your podcasts.